now the thing I'm most excited for is I get to read God's Word to you guys. Um, and I'm super excited today that we are going to hear from God's Word about joy. Yeah, what joy is. So I, I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So yeah, hear the Word of God together as a church family. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing, was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region... Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and they returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one, one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that, that your word here in Luke, man, that it would be fresh to us, that we could, like, imagine what really went down. It, it is amazing. It is awe-inspiring just to think how you came to this earth. Man, I, I hope in heaven we can see some IMAX footage of this because it is amazing. It should stun us, leave us in awe. And again, one of the promises here is joy. 
You promise us great joy through Jesus Christ. I long for that joy. I know many in here think there is no chance for joy in our life any longer. And that's just a lie. So I pray today that through your word, through Matthew's teaching, that we could just taste a little bit of the true joy that you offer us. And I know that can only be done through the power of your Holy Spirit. So I ask for that today. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you lost your places in Luke chapter 2, would you turn back to Luke chapter 2 this morning in your Bibles? Luke chapter 2. It's my pleasure to welcome you again this morning here to Grace Church. How are we doing? All right. Well, Merry Christmas to you. It's Advent season, huh? Are you excited about that? I am. Since the days of the early church, writes historian Jonathan Gibson, Christians have observed a time in the church calendar for a more focused concentration on the second coming of the Messiah known as Advent, which is an important sentence, I think, because we don't want to forget a concentration on the second coming of Jesus. The origins of this go back to the fourth century, when new converts would prepare themselves for baptism. And as the centuries passed, the season of Advent became more directly connected to Christmas, a time to consider the Messiah's second coming as Christians reflected on his first coming. Often this involved a period of fasting and prayer in preparation for the celebration of the Messiah's birth. On December 25th, if you're in the Western world, in January 6th, if you're in the Eastern world. Contrary to popular opinion, the date of the Messiah's birth on December 25th is not due to a pagan holiday that has just been repurposed by Christians. Rather, the date is based on a belief that the Messiah died around the same time that he was conceived. And today, Christmas is observed in some way in most Protestant denominations, often along with Advent, as this time of meditative preparation for celebrating who? Jesus. Of course, every Sunday should be about celebrating Jesus, the first and second coming of the Messiah. However, there is something right and good about setting aside a special time, isn't there? Just, at, just like at Easter time. I don't know if you're like me. When it's Christmas time, we, I just, Christmas is my favorite time of year. And then when it's Holy Week, man, Holy Week is my favorite time of the year, right? These seasons are good to set aside to celebrate Christ. That's why we're here this morning. It's all because the reason that we are here is because the Son of God willingly submitted to the will of the Father that while he would remain fully God, he would become fully Man, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth 
and laid him in a manger. Huh. Sin, our nature, demanded to be healed. Fallen, to be raised up. Dead, to rise again. We had lost possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a Savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state. That was said in the mid-300s by Gregory of Nyssa, reflecting, meditating upon the reality of the first coming of King Jesus. And this was the problem that was so ingrained in all of creation ever since the fall of man into sin. Humanity in so miserable and unhappy a state. And what is absolutely remarkable about Christmas, what's truly truly stunning about our Father in heaven, the creator of the world, what is so absolutely encouraging at this time of year, what is such good news is that our God cared, he cares about our misery. He cares about our unhappiness. And his aim... (laughs) His aim is your joy. That's right. Christmas is about God wanting to make you happy. (laughs) I wonder if that surprises you. I wonder if that surprises you, especially if maybe you're new to this thing called Christianity. I wonder if maybe your understanding of religion and your understanding of Christianity might be just half a bubble off plum. And you think it's mainly about being very serious, you know, about deep theological truths and doctrines, about reading and studying and making arguments and defending principles, about being the apologist in the midst of a culture that's going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm going to do something about that. You know, it's also very serious and important and grave. (laughs) But here's the thing. And it's quite important, actually. So I need you to listen. If you lack joy in the pursuit of all those things that I just said that are certainly a part of Christianity, I think you're completely missing the point. And if you think I'm saying that too strongly, then I don't think you listen closely enough when Pastor Jim read what most of us consider the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. I mean, really now, what exactly did the angels proclaim? Verse 10. Don't be afraid. Okay, why are they saying that? They're saying don't be afraid because angels are scary. All right? Every time angels show up in the Bible, people wet themselves. All right? These are not precious moments figurines. These are powerful supernatural beings that wipe out cities and 185 Assyrians. 
So they have to go, okay, we know we're scary. Don't be scared. Because <laughs> I proclaim to you good news of what? Great joy. Isn't that awesome? I, not, you know, I've got a little joy. I proclaim to you joy. No, I proclaim to you great joy, which will be, you know, for a few people. No. No, it will be for all the people. Good news of great joy. Great joy. Oh, my goodness. If you're a Christian, don't be a sourpuss. We have good news of great joy. All right, I'd like you to do something for me. It's going to be a little weird. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. I'd like you to close your eyes. Okay, trust me. I want you to close your eyes. Do you have them closed? Nice and tight now. Close them. I see some of you looking. You're not listening. Simon says, close your eyes. Now, I want you to try and clear your mind. So to help you clear your mind, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a black chalkboard. You know, some of us have never seen a chalkboard. We've just seen screens, but a lot of us have. You know, those old black chalkboards, and they had that little tray at the bottom with all the dusty white chalk in them, those little white sticks of chalk. Now, I want you to imagine one of those pieces of chalk begins to float up into the air, and it comes into contact with the chalkboard, and it's writing, and it's creating a fill-in-the-blank sentence that you're going to have to fill in the blank. Okay, now open your eyes. There it is. Blank brings me joy. Now you have to fill in the blank. Now I want you to turn to your neighbor right now. I'm going to give you a chance to talk about there for a minute. For a minute. What brings you joy? Just share with your neighbor. That blank brings me joy. Okay, so now how many of you felt really uncomfortable when your neighbor was trying to go like all spiritual on you and they were like, Jesus, (laughs) you know, like God, (laughs) Yahweh gives me joy, the Bible gives me joy. And then how many of you were like honest? I mean, that's true, but you were like ice cream, (laughs) like dude, barbecue, Like, gives me joy. 50 burger. Man, like onions and cheese just melting out the sides. Maybe you don't realize that, like, ice cream is actually spiritual. (laughs) Like, we shouldn't separate those things out, right? Like, and, and maybe you understood that joy can look a little different based on the person, right? Based on different people and times. I mean, I've, I've asked people in the past this question, like, what is joy to you? I asked a mother, what is joy? And she said, fullness. 
To which I said, you mean like after a really good meal and your stomach is full? And she said, no. No, fullness, like, like when all my kids are in the house and all my family is together and I just feel full. I asked some friends, what is joy? And, and their response was happiness, <laughs> laughter, delight. It's, it's a thrill. It's, it's exaltation. It's, it's gladness. I asked another friend this, what is joy? And, and he responded, joy is when my wife calls me by my name. I know that sounds maybe a little weird, he said, or, or simple, but there's something about hearing her say my name, even after all these years of marriage. There's, there's joy in that for me. And when we hear such reflections like that, like you just share with each other, right, we realize there's a certain subjectivity to joy. It seems dependent on, on the person. For the father, joy may be the giggle and laughter of his, of his toddler son as they play and wrestle around on the floor together. Do you remember that, dads? The smile breaking across a, a little boy's face, eyes lit up, delighting in the sheer freedom of being with his father. For the musician or the stage actor, joy is the reaction of the crowd, the standing ovation. They've gone along on the journey with you. They've appreciated your craft, your art. They've taken delight and pleasure in the journey. They're expressing their gratitude and acceptance and approval of you. For the movie star, joy is the box office results. Or the conferring of the Oscar, your peers and people saying, well done. For the athlete, joy is the excellent performance on the field of battle. The pitcher's no-hitter, the batter's grand slam, the basketball player's triple-double, the, the quarterback's game-winning fourth-quarter drive. It's winning the World Series, the Super Bowl, the World Cup, the U.S. Open, the NBA Championship, the Olympians' gold medal. For the artist, joy is not only the completion of the work, the the painting, the sculpture, but it's the sharing of it. And it, it's of someone getting it, getting what you did. Do you see? Years ago, I was pondering this declaration of the angels, good news of great joy, and, and I wanted to get at a definition of joy, which, which can be kind of hard, right? Joy can be kind of squiggly. Emotions are that way. But as I was pondering that, I, I read this sentence. I don't even remember who wrote it. Joy is the experience or feeling resulting from a desire perfectly met. Joy is the experience or feeling resulting from a desire perfectly met. I think that's pretty helpful. Because it gets at expressing what's going on in many of the descriptions and experiences that I just shared with you and that you shared with each other. All of them are pathways or, or maybe we could say sources of joy. We are, all of us, driven towards certain things and experiences and many times this is subconscious even. I don't think we're even thinking about it. You're not, you're not expressly thinking this way. You're driven toward a thing not because of the thing itself but because of the way that you feel when you get that particular thing or that desire met. It feels good and that's joy. But here's what we all know. That feeling and experience of the desire met is fleeting, isn't it? It's hard to hold on to. When we look at the world, at humanity, when we look around at each other and share our stories, what we see are, 
are men and women struggling to maintain joy. We struggle even to rightly define it. And so, because we don't rightly define it, we don't often rightly pursue it. Sometimes people pervert how they get what they call joy, or they're abusive in obtaining it. They, they hurt others to get it. And even at our best, when, when we get what we thought would, would be joy, we realize it wasn't all we thought it would be. Isn't that a truth at Christmas? How many times when we were growing up as kids and like you just wanted that toy? Oh man, Mills Fleet Farm, I would get that catalog and I would cut out the pictures of the toys that I wanted, right? And you would paste them on a piece of paper and like you were just thinking for weeks, like my whole life, if I could just have that toy, I would be happy. And then you open that toy and there's all this joy and then what happens? The next present. And you open that one and then another and another and like the next day, you're wondering why you even wanted them. We find ourselves getting the things that we thought we wanted unhappy and unfulfilled. Many of us have heard this. Maybe it's been said too much, but I'll say it again. Tom Brady, multiple MVP of the NFL, Super Bowl winning quarterback, six rings or seven. I lose count. He had the supermodel wife. He has more money than he can spend. A lavish lifestyle, seemingly well-adjusted perspective, charitable personality. In an interview years ago, reflecting on it all, in a moment of vulnerability with a reporter, said, God, there's got to be more than this. There has got to be more than this. And maybe you've thought the same thing as Tom Brady. Isn't there more than this? Is this all there is? And then along comes Christmas. <laughs> and the story of what God has to say about that ache within, I think, every human heart. Don't be afraid. <laughs> For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. All people can have great joy. Christmas, and thus Christianity, has at the heart of its message the experience of joy. When we are saved into this reality and into this family, into Jesus, we are saved into joy. And so it is that part of our evangelism, part of our, part of our outreach to the world ought always to be connected to and answering the longing of every human heart, right? All the people, this, this desire for an experience or feeling of a desire perfectly met. Isn't it wonderful, <laughs> the message that he gives us? He creates people who in their fallen state have trouble maintaining and experiencing joy and then he puts in our mouths a message of joy. Who here uh, has ever read or watched The Lord of the Rings? Hands. Lots of you. Who here has ever read or heard about The Chronicles of Narnia? Yes? Right? And, and so do you remember who wrote these things? 
right? Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. Did you know that those two authors were best friends? Did you know that at one time, one of them was a follower of Jesus and one of them was not? In 1929, these two men, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who had become very good friends, both on the faculty of Magdalen College at Oxford, Tolkien, a Christian, Lewis, a proclaimed atheist. One day, they're there at Magdalen College and they go for a walk. It ends up being a very long walk, starts in the afternoon, goes until 3 a.m., They go along this walk on the river, Joseph Addison's Walk. You can still walk there today. Tim Keller shared their story years ago. He says they they were trying to talk about Christianity and, and Tolkien was trying to show Lewis how important it was to believe the truth of Christianity. And Lewis, in response, says to Tolkien, I would like to know I would like to know how in the world the life and death of somebody 2,000 years ago could possibly have any relevance to me. Lewis further argued, I'm a scientific person. I'm an objective person. In other words, prove it to me, Tolkien. Prove it to me how Jesus is relevant. You see, I believe that all that is real is what you can touch, taste, hear, see, and smell. That's what's real. When you die, you rot, and that is that. Period. Well, how would you have responded to Lewis? There are a lot of C.S. Lewis's walking around Salida, Colorado, and in our valley. So what would you say to an atheist that you know making that very argument to you. What possible relevance does Jesus, this this guy 2,000 years ago, what possible relevance does that have to my life? I love what Tolkien does. (laughs) He appeals to Lewis's desires and those desires being met, which based on our definition is joy. So he's appealing to joy. Here's how Tolkien did that. You see, he knew that Lewis was an artist, an English literature professor. So Tolkien says to him, Clive, right? That's what C stands for. Clive Staples Lewis. What happens to you when you're in the presence of of great art and great music, a great story, great theater, great paintings? What happens when you are in the presence of it? What do those things do to you? How do they affect you? Well, Lewis knew what everybody really knows, which is when you get into the presence of great art, regardless of what you believe, you feel things, right? You feel that there's some kind of meaning in life. You, you feel that maybe in the, in the face of a great romantic story that there may be true, perfect love somewhere. You feel that maybe there's ultimate truth, even though you may believe it's not true, you feel like in the presence of those great things, maybe it's possible. Great art, great music, great stories and other things, like the first time you fall in love or or when you get to go to a vacation place that just has unbelievable scenery, right? Lewis knew 
He knew this. He had written about it and taught it. That when you get in the presence of these things, you sense there's some kind of a reality that you're out of touch with. That there's meaning and love and truth. So Tolkien walks alongside his friend and he appeals to joy and he explains to Lewis. Now listen closely to this. This is absolutely brilliant. You know, Clive, when you're in the presence of great art, there's a joy that you experience. But the joy is never delivered by the great art. Which, which might sound a little confounding, right? Because you think, well, no, wait a second. I, the joy is from the great art. The joy, that art made me happy. The music made me happy. No, says Tolkien. The art makes you feel there's ultimate truth, but it's not ultimate truth. It makes you feel there's perfect love, but it itself is not perfect love. It makes you feel that there's meaning. And even as you experience it, you realize this feeling is just coming through the art. There's an underlying reality from which you are cut off that we never feel we can quite get to, that we so need and we so want. Well, what did Clive say to that? Well, he looked at Tolkien and because he was an honest atheist and not a dishonest one, he was an honest atheist, he said, well, of course I know all of that. Everybody understands that. Yes, the, the great music, the great books, the old myths, the great legends, everybody understands how, how they make you feel like there, there is some true meaning. But then he looked Tolkien right in the eyes and he said, but they are lies breathed through silver. In other words, yeah, I get that that's all beautiful. I get that it gives me the hope that there might be some ultimate truth and some deeper joy that I'm not able to experience just merely on the surface. But it's just a lie because there's nothing and there's no one. Tolkien actually senses he's got Lewis right where he wants him at this point. And he says to him, no, my friend, they're not lies. Why would art make you feel this way? That there's this underlying reality that we're, that we're cut off from if there wasn't such a reality. Where would you have gotten that idea? Then he turned around, got right in front of Lewis. And he says, do you understand what Christmas is about? And I just imagine Lewis going, like, you know, in your brain, like the argument's kind of rolling along, right? Like Christmas? No, what? Fine, what is it about? What Christmas about is about is the truth. What Christmas about is about is the underlying reality, Clive. It's about the perfect love and the ultimate truth and the meaning that art gets you near but never allows you to grab it. It is the scent of a flower that we've never seen. It's the echo of a tune that we've never heard. You see, brothers and sisters, that is what God was declaring over 2,000 years ago to a humanity struggling to understand what true joy actually 
is in the midst of its brokenness, of all of its failed and fleeting attempts, of its wrong estimations and perverted pursuits, and even its common grace experience of joy at times rightly felt, God, through angels, says, look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And then he defines it, which is really important. Well, what's the great joy, God? Well, today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah and the Master. <laughs> Do you see? It, it is not merely that the coming of Jesus is cause for celebration and rejoicing, though it is. What is really going on here is that every single angel in heaven millions. We know when we go to the very end of the story in Revelation, we know that there are millions. The numbers that the, that the Apostle John uses to describe the angels, the heavenly throng, is a number for millions and millions and millions of angels. Can you imagine looking up and seeing a sky of glowing, terrifying supernatural beings? Millions of them. And they're looking down into this event, unlike Lewis, who looked into that event and thought, what possible relevance does that have for me? They look into that event and they realize that it has all the relevance in all the world for all people. Christmas is about joy. <laughs> Great joy. Christmas is about mirth. Laughter, joviality, rubbing your belly, laughing out loud with tears streaming down your cheeks, kind of joy. All of those experiences radiate back to this one world-shattering declaration. Christmas is about rightly, finally, Finding what joy really is as the source behind and producing all of our delight and happiness in pl and pleasure in every other good gift that God has provided to us. So don't, don't be a stuffy Christian and sacrifice your joy on the altar of your piety. Don't do that. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Enjoy a hot fudge Sunday to the glory of God. <laughs> Enjoy opening presents to the glory of God. Amen. Don't say, merely Jesus is the reason for the season and he was my gift this year. <laughs> That's not Christian. It's just not. It is understanding that Jesus himself is joy and therefore infuses true and lasting and resilient joy into all our other pleasures in all areas and every moment of our lives. Jesus is what Tolkien was on about in describing Christmas. Jesus, let's insert it into what he said to Clive. Jesus is the underlying truth and reality. Jesus is the perfect love. Jesus is the ultimate truth. 
Jesus is the meaning that the great experiences get you near, but without him, never allow you to fully grab and hold on to. Jesus is the scent of the flower we have never seen and the echo of the tune we've never heard. Jesus is what we've all been waiting for to bring about the experience and feeling of desires perfectly meant. And this was the way it was always meant to be. In the very beginning, in Genesis, joy walked among humanity. The first man and the first woman. And true joy was theirs as a result. Their desires were perfectly met. They never lost joy. It never slipped from their fingers. Its experience wasn't perverted. They didn't hurt others or abuse people to get it. But ever since the fall and the expulsion from the garden in the dawning of a broken and sin-stained creation in which we all now live, joy, joy seems elusive, doesn't it? Can we just admit that? That joy seems elusive? And I think that's, I think that happens because we get separated from what is truly joy. And, And that's why it gets elusive. The psalmist testifies to this truth that is ingrained in creation. I said to Yahweh, I have nothing good. Tava. I have have no happiness, no pleasure, no delight, no joy besides you. Psalm 16.2. And, he said further, take joy in Yahweh, not a period, and he will give you your heart's desires. You see why I think our definition is maybe pretty helpful. As I take joy in Yahweh, as I realize that I have nothing good apart from him, that just like gives me everything besides. You see, what we need is someone else someone wiser and smarter and holier than us to define right desires. We need a God who defines right desires and desires rightly met. It's really important to living a joyful life. The problem with humans is that we cannot trust ourselves. (laughs) We can't trust ourselves. We have thousands of years of history to show that we pursue the wrong things and the right things in the wrong ways. The fall of man into sin has lamed and prevented us from finding true joy because it has separated us from God and there is no true joy apart from God. But when we pursue God, when we try and move one step closer to Jesus and we find our pleasure and our joy in him, then he will rightly align all of our desires and he will give us the capacity to rightly enjoy all the other gifts that he has given to us. I mean, it is Christmas after all, right? That's what we want, don't we? We want to be able to rightly enjoy all these other beautiful things that he's given to us. You see, there is something more to this life. And in Jesus, we have it. And it's such a privilege to enjoy these things. Oh, I was on a hike again yesterday morning, you guys. And one of the things that just struck me walking in our beautiful valley is what a privilege it is. It's such a privilege that he's given this to us. That he gives me eyes to see. That he gives me nostrils with little olfactory senses to smell 
pine trees. Oh, I wish I had a real tree in my living room. I still love you, Susan. But all of these things are gifts. That when I was on the hike yesterday, what was I experiencing? Joy. Joy. Because I'm just here. I'm just alive. <laughs> I don't even have to think, and my arms do this all the time, right? <laughs> See, in this way, going after Jesus, we may enjoy everything else we get in addition to Jesus, truly joyful, because we enjoy it in him and for his sake. We connect the dots. That's all. It's not some big thing. And you don't have to make a big thing. You just, it's just a thought. Like when, when the good thing is happening, like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. That's all. And then just go on enjoying whatever it is you're enjoying. And when you live life that way, here's the thing. Here's the remarkable thing about this. The joy endures because it's tethered to eternity. You don't lose it. You, you don't, it doesn't slip out of your fingers anymore because you've tethered it to the immovable reality of the Messiah. This is what the incarnation, this is what the incarnation is all about. This is what Christmas is all about. God with us. Joy in him, in his presence. This is a truth attested to yet again by the psalmist. Psalm 16, in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures and God the Father sent God the Son from his right hand. That's right. What are the eternal pleasures at your right hand, God? Jesus. And he sends him into the world. And Jesus then teaches us, John 15, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. I am the vine. You are the branches. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you. <laughs> the joy of Jesus. Wow. His joy may be in us in that your joy, therefore, may be what? Full, complete, perfect. So it's possible, right? That's what Jesus is saying. It's possible. Which brings us back to the conversation between Tolkien, the Christian, and Lewis, the atheist, asking, do you understand what Christmas is about? And after that long walk, talking about joy and Jesus as the true joy behind all our other joys, Lewis finally saw it. He saw the revolutionary message of Christmas, the glad tidings, the good news, the great joy. He saw, in the words of Tim Keller, that the ideal had become real. Life as it should be had broken into life as it is. The great captain had made a breach in the pitiless walls of the universe and broken through. And Lewis says, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that the message 
of Christmas is that truth has become a fact, that God has become a historical human being, and that if I have the Messiah, if I believe and trust in the Messiah, that I have the very thing that the great art arouses in me, that joy, that are you telling me that's what's going on in Christmas? And Tolkien says, right now. You've got it, Clive. You see, there's never been a more revolutionary statement. The Bible says in the good news that joy has broken into our lives. Do you believe in Jesus, Messiah, as your Savior and King? Do you believe that in the city of David was born a Savior who was and is the Messiah. Do you believe that he is Emmanuel, God with us? Then when you get a hold of him, you have the joy that the great music, the art, and every other good and perfect gift in this world can only tickle, (laughs) can only arouse a desire for, but never fully satisfy. So take Jesus and hold on to Jesus, him holding on to you. Believe in Jesus Today, don't wait another moment. Lewis did, and it changed his life. Changed his life so that his writing became saturated with joy. And Jesus can change your life too. He can. And Christmas, with all its promise, right, Great meals, warm fires, hot chocolate, sugar cookies, ski trips and snowboarding, snowshoeing and backpacking, family and friends, hot buttered rum and seasoned check mix, trees and all the trimmings with presents galore, laughter and conversation, and more laughter, traditions aplenty celebrated together with vigor, with Jesus will have more depth and more meaning because it is and we are all connected to him. Everything will just radiate with even more joy. And all these aspects of Christmas help us in the celebration to move one step closer to him. Worship team, would you come up? Listen, family, the wonder of Christmas is that the story of the Bible, you know, I did a search in my Bible for joy this week. 207 occurrences. I call that a theme. I call that a theme. The Bible is shot through with joy. It's there in the past, in the glad tidings of the angels, the good news of great joy in a baby named Jesus. We see it in his teaching in life that our joy may be in the present, abundant and complete, and it will come to full consummation in the future when Jesus comes back and he ushers in a new heavens and a new earth and he stands before every single person who believes in him and they will hear, every disciple of Jesus will hear. What will they hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into what? The joy. (laughs) The joy of your master. It's there at the very beginning of his life. Good news of great joy. It's there at the very end of all things. We're entering into the joy of the master. I love how my friend Ray Ortland says it. The new earth will be nuclear-powered joy. 
<laughs> It'll just be radiant with it, right? Unfiltered. Can you imagine a place with no sin? No failing? Every single desire always at every nanosecond being perfectly met. Yeah, Ray, nuclear-powered joy. Family, Christmas, Christmas is good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. Yes, and very amen.